podcast one production. December 9th, 1968. I hope you'll go along with this rather unusual setting and the fact that I remain seated when I get introduced and the fact that I'm going to come to you mostly through this medium here for the rest of the show. And I should tell you that I'm backed up by quite a staff of people between here and Menlo Park, where Stanford Research is located, some 30 miles south of here. And uh, if every one of us does our job well, it'll all go very interesting, I think. That's the voice of the future, a very tentative future, a future that doesn't know yet if there's room for it, a future taking wing, worried that it will crash to the ground. But there are other futures speaking with more confident voices. When one goes to an art exhibition or an exhibition which involves poetry and music, we think that the people who have composed the music or who have produced the images or who have written the poetry are artists or poets or composers. In this exhibition, this is not true. There are moments when the world turns a corner and heads off into an entirely new direction, when the world pivots into something fresh. In retrospect, it looks obvious, but that's always how the past looks from the future. It was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the summer of riots. Heading to a winter of despair. It was 1968. When the world began. Hi, this is Mark Pesci of The Next Billion Seconds. And to co-host this special four-episode miniseries, I'm joined by Dr. Genevieve Bell. Now, yes, futurists mostly talk about the future, but the best futurists, they're the ones who have spent some time studying the past. And Genevieve and I have spent a lot of time recently looking back 50 years into 1968. A lot happened in that year, and we'll talk about those specifics in a bit. But the biggest story, the one we want to share with you, is the tale of the pivot, a change in our viewpoint, creating computers as we use them today, because the world wasn't always like this. Except in the pages of science fiction. Hey Siri, open the pod bay doors. It's already open and it's getting a little cold in here. Open the pod bay doors. I can't do that. But there's a spare key under the flower pot outside the pod bay airlock. You can let yourself in. It's the 2nd of April, 1968. And at the Uptown Theatre in Washington, D.C., a city that will come back into this story many times, the most influential science fiction film ever made its premiere. Stanley Kubrick made a series of amazing films, but he'll always be remembered for 2001, A Space Odyssey. 
the rockets and the space stations and the lunar bases, they all seemed fresh and exciting in the 1960s. That romance faded pretty much right after we landed on the moon. But what didn't fade, what stays with us today is something else. HAL 9000. There's been talking computers on screen before. Robbie the Robot in the 1956 Forbidden Planet. Even Star Trek had one. So what is it that made HAL 9000 stick? The gentle voice of the actor, Douglas Rain? Or perhaps the clear sense that HAL was more than met the eye? HAL was, after all, the first computer that does more than listen and respond. HAL reflects. Now, at the time of the film's release, most people had heard of computers. A few had seen them but only a very few had ever touched one. Because in 1968, a computer meant a device that filled a room, a large, carefully air-conditioned room, off-limits to all but a very few computer operators. I mean, not that people cared. In 1968, colour television was still exotic in America and unheard of in Australia. Telephones still had rotary dials. All of them were landlines. It took the work of several operators and cost a small fortune to place a call from Australia to America. Computers just didn't factor into most people's thinking. In 1968, computers were still fast adding machines. Banks used them to reconcile accounts. Big businesses put computers to work automating payrolls. A few forward-looking firms used them to speed up engineering, performing thousands of calculations needed to design a bridge or a skyscraper within a few seconds. And even the very few people using computers never dreamed of having a conversation with their machines. Computers didn't work that way. This is how a computer worked 50 years ago. You would type a computer program onto individual punched cards. Now, punched cards, they were sort of the post-it notes of 1968. They showed up everywhere on everything with holes punched through in various positions indicating this letter or that number. 80 characters on a card. Think of it like Twitter, but for computer instructions. You'd bundle these cards together and feed them into the computer through a reader. And the computer would read those cards, then run the program and spit out pages and pages of output onto a printer. And then the computer would stop waiting patiently for the next program. Hell. Well, Hal was different in every aspect. Hal was autonomous. It could do things on its own. Hell had agency. It knew what it wanted to do. And that, well, that's the part of the film that everyone remembers. Because Hal fought for its life, just like any human being. Artificial intelligence was just getting started. The phrase was barely a dozen years old. But Kubrick zoomed in on exactly what mattered. The most shocking sequence in 2001 isn't when Hal murders astronaut Frank Poole, but when Hal is in turn deactivated, killed by astronaut David Bowman. That pivot into sympathy for a mechanical devil transformed our sense of possibility. We turned a corner and got a look at another world where computers would think for themselves and act for themselves. Where it wasn't about how we used computers, but how much we trusted one another. A topic that feels strangely current today. Now, the realities of 1968 fell far short of the fantasies of 2001. To do more than process a list of punched cards and wait for the next set of instructions, computers would need to be rethought and redesigned. They'd need to have a piece of software called an operating system that would allow them to do more than one thing at a time. Now, that had already been worked out with something called multitasking. 
And when we use the word multitasking today, we think of a human being juggling multiple tasks. But the term comes to us from computing. And it's a technique that allows a computer to do a small amount of one task and then a small amount of another task and then another and another, but doing it all so quickly that it all looks seamless, as though all of the tasks are happening at once. Multitasking. Very few computers in 1968 used multitasking because multitasking requires lots of memory. And computer memory was outrageously expensive in 1968. A thousand bytes of memory, that's just two pages of text, would set you back a thousand dollars. And computers needed a lot more memory than that if they wanted to multitask. How much memory? Well, a big computer in 1968 might come up with a megabyte of memory for a million dollars. So computers couldn't do more than one thing at a time because it was simply too expensive. That doesn't mean computers were useless for anything but accounting. Far from it. Even before we built the first computers, people were thinking about how we could use computers. And one of those deep thinkers was a fellow named Norbert Wiener. Wiener was a true polymath, could speak eight languages as a child, invented whole new fields of mathematics as an adult, and topped his career by adding a word to the English language that's now so common we almost ignore it. Cyber. (laughs) When Norbert Wiener thought about how we'd use computers... He imagined machines that could listen and respond to us. Machines that could learn from us and from their interactions in the world. Machines that would come to govern themselves. After all, that's what the word cyber means. It's the Greek for to govern. Wiener spun his ideas into a whole new discipline, cybernetics. A revolutionary idea that shaped the thinking of generations of folks exactly like Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. Ideas that found expression in HAL 9000. And not just in fiction. Clever people of all stripes, scientists, engineers, artists, they'd been taking the ideas at the core of cybernetics, systems reflecting and responding to their environment, and they started to apply them to their own work. And a lot of that, in the earliest days, centered around making the computer sensible, taking it out of the abstract realms of pure mathematics and giving it a more human character. One person took that quite literally, Roland Emmett. Roland Emmett combined the satirist's eye with the mad single-mindedness of an inventor out in the shed, creating 50 years' worth of bizarre kinetic sculptures that would show up in the pages of Punch and go on to inspire an American named Rube Goldberg. Norbert Wiener never imagined the way his ideas might be embodied in Emmett's forget-me-not, or as Emmett liked to refer to it, the peripheral pachyderm. I know you're thinking, what is a peripheral pachyderm? Well, it's a computer. Shaped like an elephant. It was a computer made of bamboo with butterflies in its stomach. It was designed to be the mainframe for the front office. And it was glorious. And if you want to see what it looks like, we have YouTube video on the website at nextbillionseconds.com. And you can play the video because although we can describe it to you and we will describe it to you, it's very hard to explain how literally he took some of the ideas like memory. Well, because in some ways for Roland Emmett, he understood that what computers were about were memory and what remembers things better than an elephant. And so there's this idea that there's little memory cells and the doors are being opened on the memory as if they're little boxes with things being put into them. There is a stomach full of butterflies and a peripheral next to the pachyderm. So there is a large elephant made of bamboo. It's 
beautiful. It has ears. The ears flop. It has two additional pieces that sit on either side of it. And it still exists. You can go visit it if you're in Ontario, Canada. I believe it is in the Science Museum. And truthfully, it's one of those things where even just the saying of it, peripheral pachyderm, it's hard not to have a little giddy giggle. And some of this actually then reflects on what we thought of as computers in 1968, that in some ways they were still somewhat magical. And so we could bring them to life in this very almost fantastical way, in a way that connected us to how we thought of them rather than how they worked, which is all very sort of straightforward and electronic. And I think there was something about in a world where all the computers were mainframes and big and large and instrumentalist, the notion of having something that you'd want in the office of an executive was a new idea. Right. And that would have to be, I guess, quite different. It wouldn't be this large, lumbering, well-air-conditioned, very well-tended thing, yes, with the tape drives whirring around, but that it would need to be something that was friendly and cute and a little uh, idiosyncratic. And possibly even sculptural. I mean, and this thing is designed to have all of that, right? Now, of course, Emmett is famous for many other things. Some of you would know him with even if you'd never seen his work. He is, after all, the maker of all of the extras from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So many of us grew up with his crazy ideas about what technology should look like. I think of all of my very favourite pieces, he has something called the vintage car of tomorrow, which just seems like <laughs> so delightfully improbable. You're like, okay, good. Now, of course, the most important thing about the peripheral pachyderm, or indeed sometimes called the forget-me-not, was that it was a commissioned piece. And who commissioned this? It was commissioned by Honeywell. So the company that we now associate with thermostats, but in those days, they made mainframes. And so in 1966, they approached Roland Emmett and commissioned him to make this remarkably whimsical, in some ways, display computer. And one of the most interesting things about the peripheral pachyderm is that it actually does multitask. You could see it. It's doing many things at once. The wheels are turning, the angels are dancing, the elephant's ears are flapping. So in some ways, it's doing more than most of the computers of the era could do. And I think in some ways, its most important function was that it gave computing a form that people could recognize. It gave it a a way of feeling like something that you could encounter with as you said, an almost human aspect. So the pachyderm serves as a centerpiece for an exhibition that was going to shine a very different light on the world of computers, an art exhibition. And for the first time anywhere, the computer was going to be highlighted as a way to make and to reproduce art. The show's curator, Jasa Reichart, named the show Cybernetic Serendipity in acknowledgement of Norbert Wiener and spent three years gathering up all the art and all the technology she needed. Firsts are never easy and they're almost never complete. They're almost always works in progress, as Jasa herself acknowledged. Cybernetic Serendipity deals with possibilities rather than achievements and in this sense it is prematurely optimistic. There are no heroic claims to be made because computers have so far neither revolutionised music, nor art, nor poetry, in the same way that they have revolutionised science. Computers had only rarely been used to create music, or films, or poems, or any other forms of art. 
Jesa found artists and scientists working at the edge and brought their work to the center. And what a center it was. In 1968, in the Design Museum on the Thames, she brought together a myriad of different kinds of works. She had art created by computer programs. She had digital music. She had poetry written by algorithms. She had early instantiations of computer graphics, of digital light. It was extraordinary. It started in London. It moved to New York. It ended up in the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Which had just opened at the time. It was one of the very first exhibits in the Exploratorium. And for me, there are some pieces about it that are genuinely extraordinary. There are a couple of pieces of digital art created by, of all things, Fortran. So we are talking about the programming language created by Barkas in 56, designed to run on IBMs. And someone worked out how to manipulate that to make art. There are probably two pieces that I think are the most exquisite in that, one called Return to a Square, which you will also find on the website, and the second called Running Cola is Africa, both of which are attempts to take forms and reimagine and repurpose them. There were also pieces of the first attempts to do data visualization. Mm. So one of the pieces on display is a visualization of human bodies designed to be inside a cockpit of an aeroplane using data from the United States Air Force's pilots database. So early data visualizations. Uh, Namjoon Park's, some of his very first art, so Korean artist, his first art was there. There is a wonderful uh, set of pieces of haiku that are really sort of a bit delirious. And, and a bit ominous because they mix in images of thermonuclear war. In other words, actually the bombing of Hiroshima together with very sort of almost Wordsworthian idols to nature. Absolutely. So what you started to see was people thinking about how will computers encounter text? I mean, effectively, machine learning before we knew how to use the phrase. Now, of course, what's fascinating for me about that exhibit is that actually a whole lot of people saw it. The estimates of the number of people who came through the doors in London in 68 are upwards of 40,000. By the time it came to New York and San Francisco, it had acquired a bit of a reputation. And people saw it. And what's interesting is if you look at the roll call of the participants, you're talking about some of the earliest progenitors of computer graphics, some of the people that would go on to be big names in that whole area. This was the first place they turned up. And for me, what's most interesting is we don't remember it. Like here was this exhibit in places that are a big deal that some communities remember. It's not that everyone doesn't, but in computing, we forgot Now, from the time of its invention in the 1940s, humans had always spoken computer, first in the physics of electronic circuits and then in programs that were physically wired into early machines and then finally into programs that were typed into punch cards and loaded as needed. But it had never been easy for humans to speak computer. My aunt was a computer programmer back in the early 1960s, and she told me stories about programming. And when she did this, she would get a sheet of paper that was ruled into tiny little squares. And into every square, you'd put a computer instruction. And you'd put it in as a number because the instructions didn't have names. They were just numbers. And the whole program could be hundreds or thousands of these instructions, each in their own tiny box on this sheet of paper. And that's a human speaking computer. But cybernetic serendipity 
it showed a different way. No longer is the human speaking computer. Instead, the computer is speaking human in the universal language of art. And today, well, pretty much every bit of what you read and watch comes to you on a computer screen. Almost every bit of art in our world today is computer art. We might not think of it as computer art, but it's all been shaped in some ways by the touch of a computer. Jason Reichart saw this coming. She knew that this transformation would radically extend the reach of art. New media such as plastics or new systems such as visual music notation and the parameters of concrete poetry inevitably alter the shape of art, the characteristics of music and the content of poetry. New possibilities extend the range of expression of those creative people whom we identify as painters, filmmakers, composers and poets. It is very rare, however, that new media and new systems should bring in their wake new people to become involved in creative activity, be it composing music, drawing, constructing or writing. This has happened with the advent of computers. Cybernetic serendipity is another pivot. Where Kubrick used art to explore the computer becoming human, Jason Reichart used art to explore the emerging creative relationship between humans and computers. It's not nearly as polished or complete as Kubrick's masterpiece, but it left us a lot of space to wonder and play. When we come back, Genevieve and I will explore some of the more weirdly wonderful art of cybernetic serendipity. Hi, this is Mark Pesci back with Genevieve Bell. We've named this series 1968 When the World Began, not because of hyperbole, but because in so many ways the world we inhabit today had its roots in 1968. This is probably nowhere as clear as in the world of art. Computer art wasn't recognized as art until cybernetic serendipity. And now nearly all the art is computer art. It's quite a distance to come in 50 years. So when we talk about cybernetic serendipity as a moment in time, what do we start to see coming together? We see what music, right? Because there are some very early pieces. We see some, uh, I guess we could think of poetry or, or wordsmithing, whatever you want to call it, word processing, which doesn't exist at this point. And we see visual art. We also see video and film. Right? So these are all the different aspects of the world that we see art in today. Yeah, except I think the most significant pieces there are actually the graphic art. So the attempt to take algorithms and make art, I think those might be in some ways the most radical shift there. The notion of using technology to make music hardly new after all, you know, Australia has had the pianola forever. Um, but the notion of an algorithm, so a program, the very thing you were talking about, the instructions that your aunt made, using those to make art, that was a radical shift. And for me, it's exemplified by two pieces in particular, and I mentioned them earlier. Running Cola is Africa and Return to a Square. They were produced out of the IBM Scientific Data Center in Tokyo by a group called the Computer Technics Group. They used Fortran, and they're fascinating as objects. So, I mean, let, let me just describe them, right? So, Return to Square is exactly what it sounds. It starts with the square. The square builds out, becomes a head of a woman, and then returns out to a square again. It's an extraordinary piece of single line tracing on a bit of paper. 
Second one, called Running Cola is Africa, is a series of representations that bleed one into the other. It starts with a running man, becomes a cola bottle, Coca-Cola bottle in that instance, and ends as the shape of the African continent. And it's this notion of figurative representation. In both of those instances, the men in the computer technics group at IBM in Tokyo took a set of programs that were usually designed to crunch numbers, and they pushed them as far as they could to make something else. So rather than having the output be a program that you needed to debug, the output went to a plotter, and the plotter made art. And and when we're taking a look at these, when you see the shape of the man becoming the Coke bottle becoming Africa, what we're seeing is a technique that would become very common in cinema called morphing. And so we think of this, for instance, with the T-1000, the liquid metal Terminator in Terminator 2, that it can go from one form to another form. And it looks seamless on the screen because we're mapping every step in between, which is why it's called morphing, because we're taking the, those steps in between. This is the real first example of morphing ever happening. And it's part of the show. And in some ways, even the folks who are inventing it maybe don't quite know what they've done. Oh, I think that's, I mean, so my suspicion is they knew what they were trying to do, is that they were trying to use something designed for a different purpose, which is in some ways the classic history of evolution in computing, right? It's like, we're going to take the tool, we're going to try and do something it's not designed for, and we'll see what happens. And in this case, what happened was something unexpectedly beautiful. I guess we're also then seeing that they had access to not just Fortran. And Fortran, for the listeners who may not be familiar with it, was a, it's an old-timey programming language. It's from the 1950s, and it's very much designed both to be written on punch cards, and then it fits in 80 characters, each statement in this language, but it's also designed specifically for scientific processing. It's meant for the manipulation of numbers and scientific formula. And sometimes described by colleagues of mine today as a language in which you could touch bare metal. Right, meaning that it got you so close to what the computer was doing that you could actually do that. And so you have this very functional, very powerful, but very specific language being used in conjunction with a plotter. And a plotter, so this is a pen, and the pen is drawing on a piece of paper, and the computer is controlling the pen. That was a, still a very new bit of kit back in the 1960s. And so using that in conjunction with the Fortran program wouldn't necessarily have been obvious, and using it like this to transform a shape. I think it would have been stark and unexpected. And I imagine for all those thousands of people who came into that exhibit hall, who hadn't necessarily seen a computer as anything other than something that lived in the back room at their bank <laughs> or that maybe was in a place where they sometimes transited through, that must have been a remarkable thing. Though maybe not. Maybe there's something interesting in imagining that in 1968, we didn't yet imagine what a computer could be or what it couldn't be. And so the notion that you could make art didn't seem as strange as perhaps it does now. And it is interesting because in 2001, in some ways, one of the first ways we become aware of Hal is when Hal is appraising the art that's being drawn by Dave Bowman when he's when he's showing the astronauts, he's painting the astronauts in hibernation and he's showing them to Hal and Hal is appreciating the art. And it's Kubrick's way of pointing to the fact that this is a computer, but the computer suddenly has acquired a whole set of characteristics that we think of as being human because they're centered 
around art. And so you maybe do have this moment that 1968 is this moment where the entire culture is pivoting. Cybernetic serendipity is part of that pivot. 2001 is part of that pivot, but all of us are making that pivot into a different way of our relationship to these quote unquote thinking machines. Yeah. Another way to put it would be that we were opening up our socio-technical imagination. We hadn't yet decided what the world was going to be. And so lots of things were possible. And so for curators like Reichardt, the notion of pulling together a whole bunch of works that sat at the intersection of computers and art seemed perfectly reasonable. So would we be where we are today in the world of how we think of art and computers as sort of being this very fluid continuum? Or was it the kind of thing that touched off an actual revolution in people's thinking? My suspicion is it's this incredibly important marker of a moment where we transition from thinking about computers as accounting machines to thinking about them as something that will be part of the backbone of the creative industries. Which is exactly where we are today. Okay, so if that's the case, would Jason Reichart rank up there with the immortals of computing? I mean, you and I now know about her and God bless her, she's still alive and very happy and living in London but when we start to talk about, say, Ivan Sutherland and, and Douglas Engelbart, who will show up principally in our next two episodes, will she be ranked up there with the folks who are thought of broadly as immortals of computing? I think she should be. I think there's something about what it meant to imagine a future that is hugely important. She made it possible to say, of course, computers will be used to make art and literature and magic. And of course, they will be part of how we imagine the world. What's as interesting to me is that we don't know her name or we don't know her name as well as perhaps we should. Now, the truth is, when I set out to write this series, I hadn't heard of cybernetic serendipity and neither had Genevieve. But Genevieve, when she was doing research, came across this amazing event, this important event, this event that actually defined the direction for computing and art for the next 50 years that somehow we'd overlooked, somehow we'd forgotten it, somehow we decided it wasn't important, even though it became the way we use computers every day as our aids in creativity. And it's important for us to look back to those very first roots, because in those roots, you can see all of the shoots that became the vast trees, the whole ecosystem of all of the things that we do with computers and are today. They start way back in 1968 in the work that Jason Reichardt did as she curated a show that brought everything together. On episode two of 1968, when the world began, we'll have a look into the Cold War. And how the Cold War ended up creating Photoshop. Really? <laughs> really? Cool. If you want to learn more about cybernetic serendipity and the peripheral pachyderm and Norbert Wiener or any of the many very interesting things we've already covered in this show, please cruise on over to our website at nextbillionseconds.com. You're going to find everything there you'd want to go deeper, as deep as you want. And there's a lot here because there's a lot of great art. There's a lot of great images. There's a lot of great video. That's all going to be up on nextbillionseconds.com. 1968 When the World Began was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Genevieve Bell, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. 
Genevieve and I have referenced a lot of historical materials to make this series, and we'd like to express our gratitude. Thanks to the Douglas Engelbart Institute for an excerpt from The Mother of All Demos. Thanks to the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London for an excerpt of Jason Reichardt introducing cybernetic serendipity. Thanks to archive.org user Paco Chilio for his recording of Also Sprak Zarathustra. Thanks to IBM for their 1962 recording of computer singing Daisy Bell. Now that excerpt from Cybernetic Serendipity was performed by a voice actor. And a big shout-out to the Cybernetic Serendipity book, which was recently republished in a 50th anniversary edition by Studio International. This is Mark Pesci. And Genevieve Bell. Thanking you for listening. What he said. <laughs>